Well, good evening. Glad to see you all tonight. Uh, thank you for being here. And if you have your Bibles, we're continuing in um, Colossians chapter 3 tonight. And we'll be starting in verse 5. I'd like to read verses 5 through 11. And then we'll have a word of prayer. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you for um, the singing. We thank you for the kids. We pray as they go to their classes, Lord, that they will hear about Jesus. They will learn about Jesus and we thank you, Lord, that we can be in here, and we can open your word, and we can learn about you as well. We can be reminded not only of who Christ is, but who we are in Christ. We thank you for that, and we thank you for how your word teaches us. So we ask tonight that you would do so through your spirit, Lord, that you would bring truth to our minds, or that we will hear it, that we will apply it, we will live by it. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you have given through your Son. We're so grateful for that. We give you praise and glory and honor for that. Uh, because you are deserving, Lord. You alone are deserving of all of our praise and worship. And so we want to do so tonight. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Why did my computer just die? Oh, there it goes. Whew. Scared me. <laughs> it would be a short lesson. <laughs> it looks different all of a sudden right now, too. So hopefully it hasn't uh, done something it's not supposed to do. We'll see. So um, John Owen wrote uh, what he titled, Of the Mortification of Sin in, in Believers. Right, that and he says uh, that every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, and it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. And that's what we'll be talking about tonight. And we'll be talking about this subject of sin, the, the, the presence of sin in our lives, the, the ongoing sin that we, that we struggle with, and what we should do and why we should do it, and not only that, but how, how can we do it, 
and by what power can we do it? And we see here in this passage that Paul lays out things that are to be, uh, what he says, put to death, and why they should be put to death. And later we'll see what Christians are to do when these things are being put to death. The things to put to death, he says in verse 5, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, we can see uh, in this that Paul is talking about sins, right? These things he's listed, these are, these are sins. But a question we have to ask is, well, when a person becomes a Christian, does all sin cease to be present in their lives? No, right? We know, we know that by our own experience. We know that because we, what we can see in the Scriptures and uh, we, we can see it still present in our lives, even now, those Christians, we don't want it. Uh, we, we would love to be free of ongoing sin. And praise God, one day we will be completely free of it uh, when we are glorified. So, yeah, no, we, the sin does not cease to be present in our lives. It's still something that is there, still something that we deal with. What has happened is that a Christian has been saved from the eternal penalty of sin. We know that to be true. We are, as Christians, um, free from being a slave to sin. There, uh, where uh, Christians were, once had no desire and no power to fight against sin, they now have both the desire and the power. Okay? And he says, Paul says, uh, put to death, therefore. Right? First, that word, therefore, is reminding us of something. It's reminding us of what he, uh, that what he's saying now is, um, has everything to do with what he had previously said and what he had just finished saying. That Christians have died with Christ, that we have been raised with Christ, and that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. These are, these are three major truths that he uh, had just finished writing about in this letter to the Colossian church. Um, so having those things in mind, keeping those things in mind, and all that he had written here, he says, therefore, put sin to death. Right? Clearly, sin is still present. And Paul, of all people, knows um, that it's true, that sin is still present. We know, as he wrote in, in Romans 7, he talks about the, the sin in his own life and what a struggle that is, uh, what a battle that that is. And notice also here in this passage that he's implying involvement on the part of Christians. He, he's implying that we have something to do here. Uh, we don't become a Christian and then sit back and wait for God to make us like Christ, going about doing whatever we want. That's not, that's not what we're to be doing. He's calling on the Christians to, to take action. Um, and that action is to put sin to death. Or some of your translations might use the word mortify there. Um, that's the same thing. It, it, the idea is putting sin to death. He's not saying to cover up sin or to hide sin or certainly not to tolerate sin. The command here is to kill it. And again, he's not telling them to do something that they are incapable of doing. 
as Christians, when, when God commands us to obey Christ, God commands us not to sin, and here he's commanding us to kill sin that is present in our lives, this is not something that we are unable to do now, right? Um, he has been reminding the people who they are in Christ. Christ has now, not, uh, not before, but now, uh, Christians now have the power, um, which is through the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, to wage war uh, against sin. And God's word describes this as, as a fight to the death of sin, not to the hiding or the tolerating of sin. But why so serious a goal here? Why does sin need to be killed and not tolerated? What are your thoughts on that? Some reasons. Why, why such a serious end game here in this fight? Okay, it's right. Yeah, to continue in in sin as Christians, it's it's unbecoming of children of God. It's not something that should be a part of our lives. Any other thoughts on that? Why why this has to be so serious? Okay, so, yeah, so, so sort of tolerating sin in our lives is, is very dangerous to us as Christians. True. Yes, dangerous and destructive. Yeah. Absolutely. God does not tolerate sin. We can't be close with God when we are sinning. Um, and isn't that what we want? To be close with God. To have that close relationship with God um, for sure. And sin, those are all true. All those things are true. And there's many more things that we could say about sin and why this should be taken so seriously. Um, it's an offense to God. God is perfectly holy, and it goes to what you're saying. Uh, sin is an absolute offense, and where in our lives, it's pretty typical in, in our culture that sin is really is tolerated, and not only just tolerated, but celebrated. Um, may it not be so for God's people, right? Sin weighs us down. In Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right? It, it, it's a weight. It's a hindrance. It's a hindrance to our fellowship with God. It's a hindrance to our testimony to a, to a lost world. Um, it's, it's something that we are to get rid of. It keeps us from running the race uh, of the Christian life. And that is the goal of being Christ-like. It's a good way to put it. 
right. Right. That's right. That's right. It's it's extremely serious, um, and we should we should look at it as serious. And that's why this strong language about what we're to be doing with it. It's something to be killed. And what did God say to Cain, Genesis 4, 7? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And that's, that's meant to give us that visual. Now, we can all imagine that, something evil and deadly crouching and lurking, waiting for us. Um, and that's why this kind of language is used. Uh, sin's desire is contrary to us um, as, as God's children. And we have to rule over it. And here we are, as Christians even, in this life, like you talked about, this, we have this corpse on our back that we have to deal with. Um, and we have to rule over it. And that's why all of these instructions for Christian living that we have not only in this book, but in many of the books that are written in the New Testament. Um, we have the same kind of instructions. How does God feel about sin? What are, what are some verses you can think of where God talks about how He feels about sin? Wages of sin is death. Okay? Absolutely. Right. It is, it is grieving to God when we sin. That's something else we should have in our minds when we sin, that it is grieving to God. You know, um, Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It's, it's serious language, is it not? How he feels about sin. The Puritan Richard Baxter said, uh, use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. And though it bring you to the grave as it did your head, speaking of Christ, it shall not be able to keep you there. But the point there is, again, a recognition that there is sin, and we still struggle with sin, and it is to be killed. We are to master it, not let it master us. And it's only true of us as Christians, and we can only do this because we are in Christ, because He's given us the ability to, through His, through His Spirit that indwells every believer. And we...
Well, that's a good question. Why wasn't, when Satan sinned and was cast out of heaven, why wasn't he killed or destroyed then? Well, my first answer to that is that wasn't part of God's full plan. That God's full plan is to redeem lost sinners and to glorify himself through uh, the death of his own son um, and his whole plan of life and death and salvation wouldn't have been able to play out had he just annihilated Satan at that point. Yeah, we are. And yeah, sure, sure. What was that? We, we are all held guilty of our sin. Um, we, have, we have no excuse ever, and the and scriptures tell us that, that there is, God does what he does in the way he does it so that man is without excuse. And no one can stand before him and say, yeah, but, or, but this or that. Someone fooled me. What was that? No, no weasel works. <laughs> That's right. Were you going to No, no, I think it's absolutely right. What we can't do is accuse God of sinning. We can't a- accuse God of um, causing people to sin apart from their own. That's what they would do, right, because of their sin nature. God, right. Well, and I think also along with that, there are attributes of God that we wouldn't know, we wouldn't know about if sin, if sin didn't exist. We wouldn't know about God's mercy. We wouldn't know about his grace. We wouldn't know about his salvation. Um, there are all kinds of attributes of God that we wouldn't know or understand or experience because they're, they're shown because of sin. Uh, it's a it's a weird kind of thing to think about, um, but that's how it is. We see all the attributes of God because the way that things are, uh, and God absolutely uses sin in our lives to sanctify us, uh, and He uses the evil of of others to sanctify us, um, and that we can see that all throughout the Scripture, where God uses pagan nations to punish His own people and. Um, still holds them responsible for what they were doing because they're going about doing what they do naturally, though God uses it for his purposes. 
So we can see in the, you know, in that quote that I read from Richard Baxter, we can see there the danger of not killing sin. Uh, it's, it's our murderer, right? It, we saw that in what, what God said to Cain. Um, and so the da- there's a danger of not killing sin, but we also saw in there the promise that we have no need of eternal fear because we have been raised with Christ. Pa- but Paul's making sure um, in, with the Colossian people that they know they must be active in the fight against remaining sin. We don't, as Christians, just sit back and allow God to chisel away, right? We, we participate in killing sin. So then the question is, can we kill sin, which is done uh, in the flesh, right? Our sin is done in the flesh. Can we kill sin then by the power of the flesh? Why not? Why can't we? It is a spiritual battle. We can't kill sin in the flesh. Sin is of the flesh. We can't kill it by the flesh because the battle is against our flesh. <laughs> we, we don't kill it with that. The flesh is absolutely weak. We kill it with the Spirit. The sins of the flesh must be killed by the power of the Spirit of God. And that's a benefit for the believer because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's only the believer that, that can fight, even fight this battle and win uh, is because of Christ. It's because of His Spirit that indwells us. Any passages come to mind about the Spirit helping us with this, with this battle against sin? Okay, He helps us pray even when we don't know what to pray. Sure. Okay. Talk about the armor of God. About Galatians chapter 5, you know, typically we go there to, to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Um, there's a whole other list in there, too, about what is part of the flesh, right? But also we see there in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, so we see that Paul's instruction there in that passage is to to walk in the Spirit. That means to to live your daily life in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. And there are desires of the flesh and there are desires of the Spirit. Christians, now as Christians... Uh, we, we have the desires of the Spirit now, but we also war against the desires of the flesh. We must walk in the power of the Spirit so that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So that's how we can, we can fight it. We have to walk by the Spirit. How do, we do that? how do we walk by the Spirit? What does that mean? We get in a trance and float around? or What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What's that? Chew cud. Okay, I, I think I know what you mean by that. But... Okay. 
That's right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That is the absolute truth about how we walk in the Spirit. It is the Word of God. We chew on it like chewing cud, right? You've all seen the cow out in the field chewing it. They just chew and chew and chew and chew, right? It just goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah, and we don't, the idea is not that we um, contemplate the Spirit. We don't have to just contemplate the Spirit. We can read the Word of God and the Holy Spirit teaches us the truth of the Word of God. That is our food. That is our spiritual food. And it take you back to Ephesians 6 and talking about uh, the armor of God and, and the Word of God being um, so vital to uh, the, the warfare that we're involved in as Christians. And it's the Word of God. So it's not just sitting around thinking about things. It is being in the Word of God, reading the Word of God, rereading the Word of God, applying the Word of God to our lives. Um, that's how we live our life. That's how we walk in the Spirit. And we, uh, we want to be obedient to the Word of God not just read it only. Um, so, so we have to apply it to our lives and, and be active in living out the Word of God in our lives. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, how, how can we as Christians be like God unless we know what he's like? And how do we know what he's like? It's in the word of God. That's, that's where we find it. It's not just our own thoughts about it because our thoughts are deceptive um, and wicked. But the word of God tells us what we need to know about, about him. Absolutely. Great points. Right. Right. Chew your cud. Lesson for the night. Chew your cud. <laughs> um, so in our Colossians passage, Paul lists out things of our flesh, um, things that our flesh desires, and says that they are what is earthly in us. And um, the Greek text actually talks about killing the members of your earthly body, right? And some of your translations might even use that language. Um, but Paul's not talking about harming your physical body, Okay. That would go against what he had just said in, in chapter 2, right? In Colossians 2.23, he said, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, so hurting yourself, uh, you know, if, if you're a thief and, and you, you keep stealing and then you, so you want to chop off your hands so you don't steal, I mean, the Bible gives us pictures of those things in, in different places, but actually doing that doesn't change anything. Why is that? What is the problem? 
It's no value. There's no value to that in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, it's because we have a heart problem, right? It's, it's not chopping off my hand might keep me from stealing, but the desire is still there. That's the problem. Um, so what he's talking about there are those sins that are associated with those members of the body, hands, feet, arms, sexual organs, whatever is being used for sin. And in this context, though, he is going right after sexual sin. Um, and let's look at his list here. First thing that he has there, sexual immorality. And he uses that word uh, pornea, which should sound familiar to you. And this does refer to uh, immorality specifically in sexual sins. And this used really in a general sense here, not referring to a particular sexual sin, but all forms of sexual sin can be included under the umbrella of that in this, in this context. And uh, that's any use of sex outside of God's design in marriage between a man and a woman. Um, in, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, we see that the elders there determined, with, with you had all the Gentile um, people coming to Christ there, and they had determined that, uh, to tell them to abstain from sexual immorality. And it's the same word used there. And there, It was a problem back then, especially in the um, Greek culture, the pagan culture back there. Sexual sin was rampant. Uh, it's not a 20th century or 21st century thing only. I mean, it is, but it didn't just start with us. Um, Paul tells the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual the sexual Sexually immoral person sins against his own body in 1 Corinthians 6.18. And there Paul tells him to, to flee from it. And here, as he's writing to the Colossians, he goes even farther in saying that it's to be put to death. It doesn't mean we shouldn't still flee from it, but it's, there's even more to it than that. It should be put to death. It should not be a part of our lives. And he says, impurity and that word has a broad meaning. It refers to anything that would, would be filthy or unclean. Um, and, it, and it gets to the sins of thought and word and deed. Um, and though it would encompass many things, many sins, it's not restricted to a particular sin, but it would especially be true of sexual sins. In this context, um, thought, word, and deed are present in sexual sins. Um, this word is used and identified as a deed of the flesh in the list of those deeds in Galatians 5, All right, this, this impurity. He talks about passion, okay, and it does refer to sexual passion, how it plays out in man's unrestrained pursuit of sexual pleasure. Right, uh, Paul describes in Romans, Romans 1, 26 and 27, he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
Okay, and then he goes to evil desire, and it really is it's like the word passion, but we see them both together in that passage we just uh, I just read in 1 Thessalonians, specifically verse 5. It says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Um, it seems that they're both referring to sexual sin here. And the difference between them is really that one is referring to the physical act and one it, uh, the other one to the thought that preceded it. Right? But they're, they're connected. They're, they're right there together. So the question then is, what do thoughts have to do with the act? Are they really the same? What do, what do our evil desires have to do with the acting out of the sin? Jesus said it was the same. Right. Matthew 5, 27 through 29. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Again, he's not saying actually cut out your eye, but how serious this is, is the problem. And pointing out that it's not just a physical act. It begins well before that with our evil desire. Because cutting out your eye won't change the fact that you have that evil desire in you. That can only change in the life of a Christian and only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in that Christian, as that Christian is actively involved in killing that sin. So, it's a matter of the heart. Jesus makes that clear. Though they may have been obeying the law in the strict sense of not committing the physical act, he's pointing out, you're just as guilty of this sin because you're thinking it. Right? And that, it comes from within. Right? Uh, in Matthew 5, 19, it says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Right? It comes from within. Matthew 15, 19. What was that? Yeah. I'm trying to think of it. Is it 16? 16? Uh, yeah. The, the heart is deceitfully wicked, right? Um, covetousness, he talks about covetousness. Um, or greed, your translation might say greed. <clears throat> it's, it's the idea that uh, the, the never satisfied desire to have more, right? And especially of what is forbidden. We see that in our world. Because somebody has a lot of money, were they greedy? No, I don't think we can say that. It could be true of them, right? But not everyone that has a lot got it by means of greed. But it's a, it's a big issue. Um, and he, it's called covetousness, it's called greed. Um, he says it's idolatry. He calls that idolatry. Why does he identify that as idolatry? Okay, yeah. So you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. What does that 
mean? How else can we say that? To identify it as idolatry. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the Ten Commandments don't list every sin that's ever been committed or possibly could be committed, but the categories of the Ten Commandments cover everything. There's not any sin that doesn't fit in to God's commandments um, against sin. And, and so this is identified as idolatry because what, what are we doing when we're greedy when we want more and more of something, we're focused on that thing, and we want especially what is forbidden, and we want more and more of it. What was that? That's our God, right? You're, you're taking something, whatever it is, it could even be something that's not even a sin, but you could turn it into a sin because you're putting that in the place of God. You're, you're making an idol of whether it's money or power or whatever. That, that's right, right? It, it makes it a sin. So talking about that good thing, you mean, right? Yeah, so whatever the, I'm trying to think of one, but whatever the good thing might be that it's not a sin for you to do this thing, but um, it could be something that you focus on so much that you no longer have any place for God in your life. He has been replaced by this good thing. And if you break that down, it probably will break down to pride, to wanting others to see you as a certain type of person or something like that, uh, and you completely replace God with, with this other thing, right? It becomes the most important thing in your life and not God. So it's idolatry. It's absolutely idolatry. Again, things to be killed, sins to be killed in our lives. He, he, and he puts all these things together. If you want to turn to uh, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5, he, he puts all these things together, and, and he warns the Ephesian church about these things. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And this goes to what John said earlier. Um, and let there be no filthiness no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Well, how serious is that? Very serious. Hence, the language of killing sin in our lives. It is not to be present in our lives. It's improper for sins even to be named among us as believers. The people that walk in these sins, in unrepentant sin, have no claim to the inheritance in the kingdom of, of Christ and God. Right? I can't, can't do it. 
We, we went through 1 John and we saw that, that you can't say you have part with God and walk in darkness. Okay? It's, it's proof that you are not a child of God. Very serious. These are sins that must be killed. It's, it's, again, it's not the full list of sins. Paul has not. We can't just go to this passage in Colossians and then say, okay, that's all the sins in the world. Therefore, I can do all these other things. It's not an exhaustive list. Um, but these were and are sins that most deeply and pervasively impact human beings. Um, and they've never ceased to, to do so. These are, and we see it in our time right now, more than we've ever seen it in our lifetimes, at least. It doesn't mean that people weren't as evil uh, even back in the Old Testament because they were. But perhaps in our lives, maybe we haven't seen it as bad as it is right now. And so to us, it seems like it's the worst it's ever been, right? But there is there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new sin. People have always been sinning and finding, you know, God even talks about the fact that people invent ways of doing evil. Well, how do we put them to death? We read about it in Galatians. We don't want to gratify the, gratifier, gratify the desires of the flesh, so we walk in the Spirit to do what the Spirit desires. And God's desires become our desires. How do we know what God's desires are? Well, we read His Word. We meditate on His Word. Chew our cud. Right? Uh, we want to know what God values as holy, as righteous. We want to be obedient in those areas. Let's look at another way. Turn with me to Romans 13, if you would. Let's look at another way that Paul put it when he wrote to the Romans. Romans 13. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. It says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we see that we are not to walk in the ways of darkness, that is, in those sinful ways that he listed out there. Get rid of them. Kill them. What do we do? What did Paul say to do instead in that last verse? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What is often the pattern for us when we have a particular area of sin in our lives that we're aware of, and how do we, how do we tend to deal with it? Well, when it, when it comes to light, we confess it, but then what happens? We what? He, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And then often what happens? We do it again, right? That's not his fault. We do it again. We go back to it. 
Right, and what have we been doing? We, if we keep going back to it. <laughs> it's so simple. <laughs> right? It's... Again, yeah, exactly. And, you know, alcoholism. Stop buying alcohol, right? But what do we do? We, we think, we convince ourselves we can handle it. I'm, I'm past it, right? I've dealt with it. Um, but we're really not dealing with the true origins of that sin. There's a story about a man who, who had, uh, whose habit, bad habit was hindering his fellowship with God and hurting his Christian testimony. He said, um, he prayed that God would forgive him of his addiction, but he didn't stop. He's like the man who often went forward at the end of church services and knelt and prayed, saying, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. And one Sunday morning, his pastor, tired of hearing the same old prayer, knelt beside him and cried out, Lord, kill the spider. <laughs> I like that one. I, I think that's very true. All right, This is what we need to be focused on. Right? We don't, we do, why do we keep coming back to God with the same failures and sin and ask Him to cleanse us, which we should do, by the way? But why do we do that and not confess or ask God to reveal the root cause of our problem? Why don't we do that? Well, I think for one thing, we like our sin. Sometimes we don't want to really kill it. Right? What's that? We're complete failures. <laughs> okay. Maybe we haven't sought help from another Christian to help us with God's word to get to the root of the problem, right? Or to hold us accountable. Uh, those Christians who reach out to other Christians when we confess our sins to one another, we should be embracing our Christian brothers and sisters who would come to us with the word of God and help us to see what the real problem is. And we shouldn't fight back against it when they say, this isn't your problem. This is a symptom. Here's your problem, and here's what the Scripture says. We should embrace that kind of correction from the Word of God, but we often don't, and so we, we get in this cycle. Uh, we have to get to the root of the problem. Sometimes we try to salve our conscience with confession of the symptom of some sin, but we don't want to go all the way um, and kill that sin, and why not? Well, for one thing, it's hard work, right? Killing sin is hard work. It's painful. It's not fun. It's embarrassing. I mean, you could name a whole list of reasons why we, we don't want to confess our sin to one another. Um, but I can, you know, I can look at my yard at the lawn, and I can see all the dandelions, and I can go and I can pluck those flowers off the top, and someone that comes over can see a nice green lawn, but what have I done? I've just, I've taken the easy route. I've made it appear like it's free of dandelions, but they keep coming back, right? They keep growing up again. They, they rear their ugly heads. But I have to do the harder work of digging every single one of those out by the root. Every one of them, digging them out. Even spraying with a spray. You know, I have my father-in-law come spray, and they, they stayed there. So he's not using the good spray, I guess. But, <laughs> but we want to get rid of them all the way to the root, remove them so that they're not... They don't exist in the lawn anymore, right? But on the other hand, I mustn't ever stop being vigilant because even after I've gotten them all out with the root, what happens? Sometimes they come back 
a bird flies over, brings things, whatever, however else, else they get there. Um, I, I have only dealt with a surface level problem. I haven't got all the root out. When I do get all of it out, I have to always be vigilant for it in case it appears again. Okay? I can be convinced that the problem is gone um, and let my guard down, but I shouldn't. Right? It goes back to the verse you were talking about, our, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And that's how sin is. Sin is crafty, right? Uh, Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will try to convince you that it's not sin. Sin will try to convince you uh, and lie to you that you don't have a problem with it. Um, We have to remain vigilant. And we have to take action to kill the sin in our lives. How do we do that? Well, back to what Paul said in the first part of this chapter, too. That, that we are, uh, in the first part of chapter 3, we are to set our minds on the things that are above, not on things of the earth, right? And that's our, that's our problem. We often don't set our minds on the things that are above because we are making provision for the flesh. And so we have to kill that. We have to stop doing that in our lives. We can only do it. You can't do it by your own willpower, your own strength, and as the evidence of that is that we struggle with ongoing sin, right? We, we have to go to the Lord. We have to go to his word, to the Holy Spirit. We have to read it, ingest it, chew it. Um, it has to become something in our lives that we desire more than anything else. And it will inform us. The, the word of God will reveal our sin to us. It will show us the root of our sin, And we're out of time, but he goes on to talk about why and you know why why should we kill this sin? Why should we put sin to death in our lives? And he says in verse six, because on account of these the wrath of God is coming. These very things that he has written about, and of course more than than those, but he says it's on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. But should you and I be worried about the wrath of God? Should anyone be worried about the coming wrath of God? Yeah, right? Um, we, talk about one of, we talk about one of God's attributes being that he is immutable. What does that mean? You guys know what immutability is. Right, unchanging, right? God doesn't change. We Sometimes people can think, well, there's a God of the Old Testament, and there's a God of the New Testament, right? The God of the Old Testament is wrathful and angry. The God of the New Testament is loving and merciful. It's the same God. He's always been all of his attributes all at the same time. He has not changed, including in the fact that how he feels about sin and that his wrath is coming. Um, and so the immutability of God is true when it comes to his hatred and indignation over sin. It hasn't changed. And sin isn't just an annoyance to God, like a mosquito buzzing around that he swats away, right? And then he just has to kind of live with it. That's not God. That's not what sin is to God. God is in complete control, and when the day comes, it will come in full force. His wrath will come in full force. There's no letting up or easing up or pulling punches with God. He sends out his wrath. The Bible describes it as 
as full and complete. It describes it as a pouring out of his wrath. And it's going to be complete. It's, it's going to be completely just and eternal. Arthur Pink described the wrath of God as his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against, uh, against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Again, we see that, that comparison there, the holiness of God. And when you compare that to what sin is, there is no, there's no mingling of the two. They, they can't coexist together. God is going to bring his wrath. And there are uh, many verses we can go to about why people should be terrified about the wrath of God. I think John puts it plainly when he separates out what believers will experience with what awaits unbelievers in John 3.36. Says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's where the wrath of God is already on them, but there's a day coming when it will be poured out. So, without Christ, people walking through this world without Christ, the wrath of God is still upon them. They don't believe it and they don't think it to be true because they think they're, everything's fine but they, are, they don't have Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So absolutely, people should fear the wrath of God. But you and I, as Christians, we don't fear the wrath of God because there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that we take it lightly. It doesn't mean that we don't tell people about it and that we've been saved from it. And that's not a bragging. We don't brag that we've been saved from it in some sort of idea that we had something to do with it. If we want to brag, we can brag about Christ and how, how he did that. But, but Paul is continually reminding the Colossians that they have eternal hope in Christ. He wants them to remember that. That they used to be in the camp of having the wrath of God abiding on them, but now they have been changed. And we'll see that next time when we get into the next verses um, as he talks about that, <clears throat> how they once walked. You know, but they don't walk that way anymore. And then he'll get into, and we've talked about killing sin and getting rid of these things, and he'll get into like that other verse we read earlier about putting on Christ, he'll get into what we're to put on in, replace, in replacement of those things. And they're, they're godly things. And it's an encouragement for them and an encouragement for us too. So we're out of time for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for tonight again, Lord. I pray that you would help us as we deal with ongoing sin in our lives, whatever that may be, wherever it comes up in our lives, and you know each person here, and like was said a few minutes ago, we can't hide it from you, God. We can hide things from other people, but we cannot hide our sin from you. And your word, as we read your word, Lord, it, it exposes our sin. It confronts our sin. I pray, Lord, that we would walk by the Spirit and that we would see and know what it means to walk according to your word and walk according to the Spirit. 
that you would reveal the sin in our lives and that you would empower us to kill that sin in our lives. Give us a desire to walk by the Spirit and a, not the desire to walk by the flesh, Lord. We, we ask you to help with this because we are completely reliant upon you. We express our, our need for you, absolutely. And we thank you, Lord, that you are present. And we thank you, Lord, for your promises, that your promise that this good work that you began, you will bring it to completion. What an what a amazing hope that is for us as Christians. And we give you praise. We want to honor Christ for his work. We thank you for imputing us with Christ's righteousness. And we, there is no other way that we could stand before you justified, Lord. You are a good and faithful God. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.